This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the prize-winning historian Stacy Schiff about her new, timely, and illuminating book, The Revolutionary Samuel Adams. Your book, Stacy, casts light not only on the separation of the American colonies from Great Britain in the 1760s and 70s, but also on our current raisings of alarm about the imminent death of democracy and the stoking of the fires of revolution at all points of the contemporary political compass in the autumn of 2022. Maybe you can begin with a character of Sam Adams, of whom it was said by Thomas Jefferson that he was truly the man of the revolution. Why divide your story of his life into two distinct parts? And how does he come by his two reputations? One as a sweet-tempered philosopher, cool, abstemious, polished, and refined. The other as a brawling, incendiary demagogue, a geyser of sedition. How describe his physical appearance? I think that um, I want to start with how the life divides into acts, because it's a curious life, and, and this to me was very intriguing, and in that the three acts don't necessarily follow naturally one, or don't seem to follow naturally one from the other. Adams is born to a very well-to-do family exactly, exactly 300 years ago. You can see where the historian lives in Boston. And he spends the first um, basically four decades of his life essentially amounting to very little. The family is very quickly ruined. We can talk about that. Adams never really finds a career. He never really kind of finds his place, which is very, very unusual given Boston in those years. And he really gets, begins to get traction only in the course of the Stamp Act when resistance to British authority kind of becomes his, becomes his entire world. For the next 12 years, he is, as Thomas Jefferson calls him, truly the man of the revolution. He's at the forefront of every opposition movement, of every subversive act and committee. And then post-revolution, after many years in the Continental Congress, he again is quite out of step with the, with the country that he has helped to create, very much at odds with his former colleagues, looking backward in time in a way to the old world as opposed to embracing the new world. And so he's again um, sort of tossed by the wayside by history and, and, and for, for that reason, among others, forgotten by the history book. So the life divides into these three very odd and sort of oddly weighted chapters. To your point about the different character, I think um, that speaks directly to whom you want to listen to. In the mind of to Thomas Jefferson, he was truly the man of the revolution. Jefferson said he was the most active, the earliest, and the most persevering of the patriots. And that translates for the crown officials who know him and come to hate him as the biggest incendiary in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Thomas Hutchinson, who is probably the anti-hero of the book, his chief and Adams's chief antagonist, will tell King George that Adams was the first to embrace independence. And so by definition, he's in the eyes of the crown officers, a brawling, sharp-elbowed, 
duplicitous incendiary in the eyes of the patriots, of course, in the eyes of those who are resisting what they see as British overreach, and he is truly the man of the revolution. But it is interesting, I mean, just from a, from a very personal point of view, many people describe moments in his life when he does sort of, he does overreact, he is bullying, he is domineering, he pushes people to take a stand very often, even when they're uncomfortable doing so. And yet at the same time, John Adams in particular, John Adams is, is his second cousin and is, and is younger than Samuel and recruited by Samuel. John Adams will say much of what you quoted, that he's abstemious and he's refined, he's a man of exquisite humanity, he's a man who entertains in very genteel style. He's a man with great charisma and a great number of friends. So he does have this, you know, very curious combination of the very sweet and street brawler all at the, both at the same time. And, and physically, to your answer to your question, he's, he has what are often described as very bright blue eyes. Um, he's of middle stature. He seems to have the, he seems to sort of be barrel chested and carry himself quite erectly. We know when he, when he spoke, he spoke which he did, which he did relatively seldom, that he spoke with great authority and describes it, uh, raises himself onto his toes to declaim. He's a man who's more comfortable behind the scenes than in the spotlight and who seems really most comfortable on the page, or more comfortable on the page anyway than in any kind of political discourse, more any kind of political speech making. All right, well then, let's go to the first part, the Act One, which is up until 1764, and is born as into the Boston establishment. And the beginning of his argument with Hutchinson, I mean, the two figures are opposed all the way through the book. So tell me a little bit, a little bit about Hutchinson. Tell me a little bit about Boston in the 1740s and 50s, the most sophisticated town in, in uh, North America, stately houses, umbrellas tipped with ivory. You're a very, you're a very close reader, Lewis. I love that. The, 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 the element of luxury in Boston in those years, I think, surprises us. That it's no, no one who arrives in Boston from London hesitates to talk about what a sophisticated town it is, how good the food it is, how elegant the, the architecture is. There's, you know, people have been sending back to the mother country for goods for many years now, and they have really outfitted some extremely beautiful and built some very beautiful homes. So if you read, if you read the Boston newspapers of those years, and I spent probably too much time doing so, um, you do see, you know, many luxury items. It was easy to buy a spinet. It was easy to buy a gold-topped cane for sale in Boston. But it is a town that has, and this is really, I think, crucial to much of the story. It's a town that has um, begun to decline um, from an economic point of view. It has lost its supremacy in the in the colonies to New York and Philadelphia. Families have fallen on hard times. People have been bankrupted repeatedly between the in the between the 1740s and the 1760s. And there is there a certain sort of element of unrest due to the economic vice that the town finds itself in. And I should probably add to that that Adams's first job, for lack of a better word, is that he um, serves as a town tax collector. 
And that was always a thankless position in Boston. No one wanted really to serve as tax collector. But it was a particularly thankless position in these years when not only is the economy in decline, but the town has been decimated by smallpox and has suffered a very serious fire, especially in Adams's ward where he was meant to be collecting. So, so people are very much on edge and there is this, there is this sense of paucity, um, which perhaps adds to something of the desperation or at least of the unrest of the next years. That was not felt, to, to your point about Thomas Hutchinson, by Thomas Hutchinson, who is born, like Adams, he's a fifth-generation son of Massachusetts. His family has been instrumental in founding and running the colony since the beginning. He is at Hutchinson, who's just over a decade um, older than Adams, is elected to the House of Representatives at age 26, so very early on. Hutchinson himself has um, begins to accumulate Massachusetts titles, and it's in fact the the accelerated accumulation of those titles that will so much irritate Adams. But Hutchinson is this extremely learned, very sober, very straight-spined man who tries very hard to square two things: to square the mood of Boston with what beca- with his duty to the crown as a crown officer on, on so many fronts, and that, of course, will set him on a on a collision course with Adams. And we should say probably of Hutchinson that he he does live in one of the most beautiful homes. He lives in a mansion um, which will be destroyed in the in the Stamp Act riots. Really, just over over eight hours, utterly, just everything is pilfered from the house. It's just, it becomes a shell of its former self. Everything of Thomas, of Thomas Hutchinson is stolen. It's a terrifying incident, and that does indicate to some extent the level of discomfort to some extent with. Thomas Hutchinson and, and the, the very close-knit circle of relatives who have begun to essentially among them accumulate all Massachusetts offices. Hutchinson's house gets burned down in the, what, Stamp Act riots, 1764 or something like that? 1765, indeed. And, and not burned, but just, I mean, literally the door, it's, this, it's a horrible thing even to describe the vandalism is so intense. The door is, people just arrive with axes and they make their way through the house and they, um, they pull down draperies and they, they cut up wainscoting and they break through walls. The couple at the top of the house was partly disassembled. Out the windows come Thomas Hutchinson's wardrobe, his servant's wardrobes, his telescope, his microscope, his council gowns. Papers are flo- flying through the streets. And he turns up the following morning in court with only the clothes on his back, tears glinting in his eyes to basically, you know, say, am I, I, how could this have happened? Essentially, he's basically a, a very dedicated public servant who will not really grasp the way the world is changing, these forces that are circling around him, the way the world is changing underfoot. It's also in 1764 or five that Adams meets the man who becomes his mentor, James Otis. Who is James Otis, and what is his character and background? Otis is an absolutely fascinating character. He's a he's a very brilliant lawyer, also from a very well-established Massachusetts family, who can talk a blue streak. I mean, he's clearly got a gift for language that is unparalleled at this point. He's a brilliant orator, and he essentially serves... And this is, I, I use this word slightly loosely, but he essentially serves as Samuel Adams's mentor over these years as resistance to the Sugar and the Stamp Act acts begin to build. 
And the two of them work as something of a tag team. Otis has a personal reason to dislike Thomas Hutchinson. His family, Otis's family had been promised the chief justiceship when it opened up. And in fact, and instead the position is given to Thomas Hutchinson, something that Otis can't stomach. So Otis has personal reasons to resist, to, to be annoyed by Thomas Hutchinson. Otis begins to give voice to the same kind of sentiment that on which Adams will build, just to say that any attempt by Parliament to legislate for America is overreach. He'll, he really will be the first one um, in several in several instances and in several different media to voice those concerns. Adams really takes the baton from him. By 1768, it seems as if the position begins to reverse itself and Adams becomes the more eminent player. And then in a very um, brutal collision between customs inspectors, British-based um, customs inspectors later, Otis will um, be hit over the head in a, in a sort of tavern brawl. And what had seemed to be a sort of brilliant and slightly flighty constitution, he seems to descend from there into some sort of madness. So someone who was a brilliant talker becomes an incessant talker, and someone who had could argue any side of a case suddenly goes back and forth between he has Tory days and he has Whig days. He has days when he talks about, you know, making away with the king, and he has days when he talks about colonial independence. And it's very, the regulating of those moods becomes something of Adams's burden. I think, I think it's very, I think it's a very pathetic thing for Adams. I mean, he writes about how he, you know, he almost has tears in his eyes when he talks about how this very dear friend has, you know, essentially parted ways with sanity. Also, I mean, he, at, at one point, Otis is declared insane and carried out, bound hand and foot, and given over to a custodian, <laughs> right? I mean, exactly, exactly. And and Hutchinson too is mystified. I mean, there's one point where Otis. You, know, you just can't tell which side he's on. It really depended on the day of the week. And Otis seems to call on Hutchinson to try to bury the hatchet. And then within two minutes, reverse course. So yes, he's carted off the scene. And then Adams will, he seems to sort of use him symbolically. He'll add him to committees. But as Hutchinson points out, what do you make of a committee that has a lunatic at its head? I mean, Adams is clearly trying still to integrate him into, into, the, into all this activity, but in a way that doesn't, that doesn't at the apple cart that somehow doesn't allow Otis to do any damage. It's also in the 1760s when Adams is changing into his second act that he acquires a newspaper, the Boston Gazette. And this figures prominently, the newspapers and the press throughout the 1760s and 70s. Talk about uh, Adams's use of the press. He's, he's a, a commanding writer. He's, he's really a master propagandist, absolutely. And this is why I say I think he felt more comfortable. One gets the sense that he felt more comfortable on the page than issuing speech after speech. He starts writing for the Boston. It's, it's very hard to actually quantify precisely how much he writes for the Boston Gazette because, of course, one wrote in those years under pseudonyms. So, and I'll talk for a second about how... Um, how one locates his pieces in particular, but he he begins writing for the Boston Gazette. He's actually, and this is thanks to Otis, he starts by helping representatives to the House of Massachusetts word their documents. And then he's very soon after the Stamp Act elected to the House of Representatives. But, but 
that aside, he's writing largely and often for the press. At one stretch, there's one stretch um, after 1768 where I think he has a new pseudonym every month over the course of a year. He often is writing in two papers at the same time. Sometimes two different pieces under two different pseudonyms will be in the same paper. And it is really critical here to talk about the role of the press because it is thanks to the press that obviously that Massachusetts is able to make its opinions known. Boston has five newspapers. It has more newspapers than, than anyone else. And there are 11 other papers in the colonies that reprint those pieces. So it's extremely able to sort of pollute the drinking water as, as crown officers would have seen it. But it's, you know, one of them says, how are you supposed to govern a town with five newspapers? So the press is really on the upswing. The Boston Gazette is the paper which most people read, to Thomas Hutchinson's dismay, he will he will growl about the fact that nine-tenths of Boston reads, reads the Gazette. And Adams writes for it very regularly. How much people understood whom they were reading is a little unclear. There were certain pseudonyms that seemed to have been open secrets. In other cases, John Adams sometimes didn't recognize a piece by Samuel Adams. So in other cases, he's a little better hidden. People will talk about how they passed his window late at night and they could see the, the lights on because the lights on, the, the candle light on because Adams was sitting there writing against the British. So he's really on this kind of relentless campaign in terms of the writing. It's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blast, actually, to try to figure out which pieces are his. To a, certain, a lot of people, obviously, are writing during these years about, um, about the crown and about American freedoms and how they've, how they've been infringed upon. Adams's pieces, I've identified either because... His grandson had identified them himself, so there's a big cache of those, or because sometimes he re, sometimes he recycles his own words. And then we have this marvelous collection of newspapers, which Bernard Balin um, first wrote about by a by a hardware store owner in Boston, who in 1765 realized that history was being made around him. I mean, it's an extraordinary fact that he did this, and he starts to make this collection of papers. His name was Harbottle Door, and he marked them up. So, and sometimes in this kind of obsessive, compulsive, crazy quilt fashion, but he very often would identify a pseudonym or a piece as the work of Samuel Adams. So that too has helped us to identify Adams where we might not otherwise have found him. But there are a lot of cries on all sides of, you know, in the British press and the American press accusing one each other of fake news. I mean, the, the way it is going on now. I mean, it's a it's a propaganda war. It's very much a propaganda war, and it becomes particularly so, or I guess the most marked instance of that, where, where Adams really serves as kind of minister of misinformation, if I may, is in 1768 and 9, after troops have been sent to Boston because the town has been so riotous and so difficult. This is after the ruin of Thomas Hutchinson's house, of course. Um, no one really expected troops to arrive. They arrive in, on October 1st, 1768. They march into Boston, much to the shock of Bostonians. And av- after they arrive, Adams and his friends start this kind of news service, which loosely goes under the title of Journal of Occurrences, in which they spin out just story after story of abuses and harassments by the soldiers. If you read these accounts, it seems as if every man, woman, and child was threatened by the British soldiers. Their accounts of, you know, their guns pointed at heads and their accounts of rapes and their women harassed in the streets. None of these, I might add, shows up in, in, in the legal records. So it does seem to have been largely invented by Adams and his friends. 
And those accounts are, and this is the brilliant twist on it, those accounts are written in Boston, but then they are dispatched for publication to New York and to Philadelphia. And then they're only reprinted in Boston after that, when, of course, nobody really remembers what actually happened or didn't happen. So that, I would say, is the chief, that sort of new syndicate, which is a new, a new phenomenon. It's an entirely new invention. Is probably the moment where he, where the misinformation is used um, in the most astute way. And it is this propaganda war and the fury of what we would now call hate speech on different sides that is the leading up to the Boston Massacre in 1770. Take us to the Boston Massacre. That's exactly right. When, when Thomas Hutchinson, to his great dismay, is reading these pieces, these all of these, you know, he calls them utter falsehoods that the Journal of Occurrences are, are, um, are disseminating everywhere. He's, he's worried because he thinks, you know, if they keep talking about these skirmishes and these assaults, there's going to be a skirmish or an assault. They're, you know, essentially doing nothing but raising the temperature in Boston, as was indeed the case. So by early 1770, it obviously is not a winning proposition to keep a bunch of armed soldiers amid a civilian population who doesn't want them. By early 1770, there have been a number of street fights and brawls and, you know, insults thrown back and forth. And on March 5th, 1770, as we, some of us may or may not remember, the soldiers will, provoked by the people, early one evening on a very snowy street, open fire on, on the civilians. And there are five casualties immediate. There are five casualties. There's utter chaos in the midst of it. We don't know where Samuel Adams was at that moment, although we do know where he was the next morning. The town goes wild. There's you know blood all over the snow. Everyone's up in arms. The church bells start to clang furiously. Someone at this point has the good sense to run all the way to, to Thomas Hutchinson's house and to bring him out into the street. The street is thronged with people at this point, some of them carrying weapons, some of them carrying buckets because they think it's a fire that the bells are meant to announce. And Thomas Hutchinson will climb up to the balcony of the, of the townhouse in Boston and try to disperse the crowd and encourage everyone to go home and to assure them that justice will be done and that, that the soldiers will be brought to trial and to try to calm the situation. And over the next few months comes an interesting contest again between Hutchinson and Adams, as Adams wants the trials to be held immediately while the town is inflamed. Um, and he's sure that the soldiers will be will be indicted, will be convicted. And Hutchinson is very eager, obviously, for the town to calm before any trials are held. So the two of them are at odds, first over the timing of the trials. In, in which case Hutchinson prevails, the trials don't take place until October, but also about removing the troops from town. And this is a moment that um, we sort of can imagine from the John Singleton Copley portrait, which may or may not have been meant to, meant to demonstrate Adams' stance the morning after the Boston Massacre. But he faces off, he's, he's, he's asked by the town to go to call on Hutchinson and his council members and the military authorities to convince them that they must they, they must evacuate the soldiers immediately, that the town can't any longer abide having the soldiers in their midst. There will be immediate warfare. People will, people will begin to pile in from the country and they will be, um, they'll be chasing the soldiers out and there'll be blood pretty much everywhere. And this is Adams in his sort of, in his glorious, most glorious moment in the, in the telling of John Adams. He says that it's a, it's a moment out of Livia Thucydides 
where Samuel Adams faces down Thomas Hutchinson, who has agreed to remove one regiment from Boston. And Adams takes him two attempts on his second attempt, faces down Hutchinson, who at this point is acting governor, and says, but if you can remove, if you have the authority to remove one regiment, then you have the authority to remove both. And Hutchinson, to his great horror, has no choice but to give in to Adams at that moment, which is an embarrassment that I think he feels much later and that may come into play with the Boston Tea Party as well. He's going to have to report this to London. He's going to have to report to his superiors that he has given in to the town's demands, and he's not really sure how he can stomach that. But he, but Adams does prevail that day. The wonderful thing about your writing, Stacey, is it's, it concentrates on the specific detail. So you tell the story in a way that allows the reader to see it. I mean, this is the same gift that was the hallmark of Joseph Conrad's writing. But the, you can hear, at least I can, uh, reading a book, the overtones of much of the argument that is going on today. But, but you know, the January 6th trial, Trump refusing to, to give over his papers, people being accused of being enemies of the state. I mean, it's, it, it, it's not the same, but it, it, the overtones are the same. I think the resonances are, uh, yes, almost chilling and eerie sometimes. Yeah. I mean, yes, yes, certainly with the misinformation in many ways. Yes, with you know the civic protest. I mean, one of the interesting things about Adams is that from the start, he's convinced that ordinary citizens, if they stand up for their rights, will actually manage to affect change, which is a pretty revolutionary concept. And yes, you know, yeah. through all of his boycotts and his pickets and his extra legal assemblies, he really manages, you know, with incredible success to do that at a time when that was not, you know, that was a fairly unfamiliar, those were fairly unfamiliar practices. And But I also feel as if the, well, there are two other things that strike me. One is the this moment of just like deep media, there's a great influx of new newspapers. There's a great sense that that you can do things with the media that you couldn't do before, which also seems to me to feel fairly familiar to us today with this explosion of with the explosion of social media. You know, the the, the newspapers in Boston really played a central role here, and and also you have an elite who, I mean, Thomas Hutchinson is an utterly sober, modest, decent, capable man who really only has the best interest of of the colony at heart. And he doesn't realize, he and his friends do not realize the, fu- the, the depth of the fury around them. And I think that too feels very resonant with us today. Yes, I do too. Now, lead us up to the story of the Tea Party. The Tea Party is 1773, three years after the massacre. But take us up to the Tea Party and the few weeks prior where Adams is stage managing events. So for the most part, the the collisions have come over these over that decade, over the question of parliamentary sovereignty. You know, is does the Crown have the authority to regulate uh, and to and to extract revenue from the colonies? And and I should say that that is exacerbated, that question is particularly vexed because the relationship is very ill-defined from the start. There's no mention of parliament in the Massachusetts Charter, and everyone has just kind of ignored the question for the most part until now. 
And what happens, and so and so, the acts, the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, the Declaratory Act, the the, the Townsend Act. These were all attempts to either regulate, uh, to either extract revenue or to at least insist on the principle that Parliament could be allowed to do so. The Tea Act with 1773 is different in that it. It, it really is an expedient act to bail out a British concern. The East India Company has a lot of unsold tea. The government desperately needs to do something about it. So it essentially devises a means of selling tea to the Americans, but eliminating the middleman and paying a minimal amount of duty, the, the gist of which will be that tea will be less expensive. And the other sort of unintended consequence of which will be that it, it will reaffirm a British tariff. So it sort of has this incidental policy effect, but the real reason to have dispatched this tea to America, to have entrusted it to tea commissioners um, who are going to sell it was really a fiscal one from, from the British point of view. It was really just to save this poor endangered company. Of course, the thing that no one seems to understand in London is that by this point, tea, which has been a tariffed good, is inextricably bound up with the question of liberty. There is this idealistic piece of it, which no one in London, or very few people in London, seem to have grasped. No one realizes that when they send, when they dispatch this tea, they're actually sort of shaking a hornet's nest. Also, you have to make the point that the great fortunes in Boston are based on smuggling, and the, 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 the British government feels that it's being cheated out of seventy thousand pounds of of revenue. I mean, that the, the, the smugglers are, are taking from the, the tea trade. You often see this. Hutchinson writes letter after letter in which he tries to do the math. You know, this is the amount of revenue we're losing. Here's how much tea gets drunk, which is an astonishing amount, by the way. Here's how much tea, you know, Boston itself, the countryside, even the Indians, each of them consume. Here's how much revenue that could represent. So yes, it's a very calculated move to reclaim that revenue. The one thing that that, I should just back up for a second, the one demographic that this idea undermines is by cutting out the middlemen on the tea trade, it enrages the the merchants of America as well, who now will take the side of resisting the Tea Act when they might otherwise not have. So the tea is dispatched, and then the question becomes, the tea tea arrives in Boston Harbor at the end of 1773. And the question, you have to, the question becomes what to do with it. You have 20 days from its arrival uh, until it is confiscated by the authorities if the duty is not paid. So the clock begins ticking as soon as the, as soon as the ships meet the harbor. And it's at this point that Adams seems to take a very active position. I mean, so surely takes a very active position. We don't know who masterminds the next weeks. Obviously, it's for every good reason cloaked in obscurity. Um, he clearly plays a very central role. But the question becomes what to do. And essentially, everyone would like to simply return the tea to London, um, which would require, however, given the regulations, someone issuing a pass to allow the ships to reverse course and without paying the, the, the demanded duty, sail back um, sail back east to London. And I should say that there are ships, by the way, coming to various American ports, but the Boston ships arrive first, which is something that Hutchinson bewails because he thinks if only the ships could arrive in New York or Philadelphia where people were a little bit more moderate, there wouldn't be this, there wouldn't necessarily be this showdown. So there are a series of town meetings, something at which Adams excels, a series of town meetings in Boston held to discuss the fate of the tea. And this is the moment where Adams says that, memorably says that he 
he trusts more to the because he doesn't trust the private virtue of his of his fellow citizens not to drink the tea, he prefers to trust to their public virtue in rejecting the tea. And every attempt is made to figure out a way to let the ships go. In the end, one of the owners of the, of the ship, the first ship that has arrived, is sent off to Thomas Hutchinson's country home in Milton to attempt to extract from Hutchinson a clearance, which would, would have been an exception to all the rules, a clearance to allow to allow the ships to sail out of Boston Harbor. Hutchinson and he have a conversation about which we know a little because the the owner of that ship leaves an account. And Hutchinson basically, neither of them thinks anything really is going to happen. Their, their feeling is just, well, you know, there might be some shots fired and, and they'll pretend to try to take the ships out of the harbor and that's going to be the end of things. None of them sees that something really radical is about to happen. A few weeks earlier, Adams has written to his chief correspondent in London and says that you know, if there's a solution to this problem, he hopes someone will find it soon because otherwise he's going to have a rather non-trifling matter on which to um, on which to dilate. So he's hinting that there's something afoot. And then the evening when Roach is sent to Thomas Hutchinson's house, there is an enormous meeting in Boston. They await Roach's return to see if he has indeed been able to extract this permission from Thomas Hutchinson. He fails to do so. And as he enters the meeting house... Adams is at the forefront, of, is at the front of the meeting, and he asks, you know, have, have we made any progress here? Basically, Roach says that we have not, and Adams at this point says something along the lines of, then we have done all we could for the salvation of this country. And no contemporary account will say that that was the detonating signal for the Boston Tea, or what we today call the Boston Tea Party, but subsequent accounts have sort of tied that moment, that was the last note in that room, when minutes before the room had begun to empty and a small and then larger band of people, some of them disguised very well as Native Americans, some of them disguised less well as Native Americans, make their way to the harbor. Um, They're followed by thousands of people from the Old South Meeting House. That night, we know precisely where Samuel Adams is because he's not on the wharf, very conspicuously. He and John Hancock and the other leaders of the meeting stay behind I would assume for obvious reasons, and 342 chests of tea um, dive into Boston Harbor. You tell the story wonderfully well in the book, and you call it the two most consequential hours in the history of the American Revolution, and and Adams is not there. He's back in the, as you say again throughout the book, he's more comfortable writing on the page and talking to people, moving around moving around Boston, talking to people in smoky back rooms and in a friendly manner. It, it's a, uh, before we go to Philadelphia in 1776 and the, the June Declaration, let's talk about for a moment the rivalry between Hancock and Adams. I mean, I think you call them one of Adams is the the psalm singer and what's his name? Hancock is Captain Puff. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that name. I, you, yes. And just to go back to the Tea Party for a second, 
I think Adam's always part of the reason that he absents himself, even in accounts. When he writes about what happened to the tea, he never includes himself, obviously, in the account. But it's very important to him always to emphasize principles over perpetrators. So he doesn't ever really assign credit for things. He always is always trying to yield to the noble principle, the, the central principle, because he wants this really to be about ideas, not about people. Um, it could be very different from John Hancock. John Hancock is 15 years younger than Adams. He's also, as was John Adams, recruited by, by Samuel. At a very early age, John Hancock comes into one of the biggest fortunes in New England. He's adopted by an uncle who leaves him his fortune. And Adams gets to know him well enough to judge that Hancock would be flattered, that Hancock is very susceptible to flattery, which was true, and that he would be very flattered to be included in this group of men who are fostering resistance in many ways. And he gets him elected to the House of Representatives. He helps to get him elected to the House of Representatives in exchange for, obviously, being able to tap John Hancock's fortune when was necessary. There are various junctures in, in Samuel Adams's life that he does things he shouldn't have been able to afford to do. And there do seem to be hints there that that was because Hancock was underwriting him in some way when when. Adams goes to Congress, for example, he's completely, we can talk about this, he's completely re-outfitted with a new wardrobe, which arrives out of nowhere as if, as if it's a sort of fairy tale moment. And presumably John Hancock had something to do with that, with that outfitting. But it's a very uneasy relationship in that Hancock is extremely vain. Even, even the people who loved him, I think, would be willing to admit, admit that he was vain. But something of a weather vein in his political convictions. You know, he too was a champion smuggler. He was written off by the Crown officers as a sort of poor, contemptible fool who was being led around town by Samuel Adams. And he occasionally would try to, uh, would try to separate himself um, from Adams. And in fact, there's a moment in the 1770s, just after the Boston Massacre, when Boston goes very quiet. The town is obviously exhausted, I think, from the efforts of the previous, from the, from the unrest of the previous years. And Thomas Hutchinson goes on a campaign to try to eliminate the resistance by seducing people away from Adams. And he succeeds very handsomely with, with John Hancock, who falls out with, Adam, with Adams for at least a year of that time and even attempts to try to see that Adams isn't reelected to the House of Representatives. So they have a terrible falling out. We don't really know exactly why, other than the fact that Hutchinson sort of ministered to it. And then friends, mutual friends will reconcile them. But the relationship is very on again and off again, it's interesting because the two of them become the two proscribed traitors when General Gage arrives in New York, in Boston. So they are the two most wanted men in Massachusetts, and they are together, obviously, um, before the battles of Lexington and Concord. So they're, they spend an enormous amount of time together, but it's a very uneasy pairing of a man who cares only about appearances and is very wealthy, and a very shabby man who cares nothing for appearances whatsoever. And the relationship will ultimately go off the rails post-declaration when they will be really pretty much on the outs and in, in, in what seems like a very, for Adams, a very sensitive way, a very sort of cutting way. And they will reconcile very briefly before the, before the sort of premature death of John Hancock. Talk now about, or talk a little bit about Adams's attitude toward money because part of his objections to Hancock was Hancock's wealth and 
extravagant display of his wealth and his belief that money ruled the world. Adams is a very idealistic individual who um, is Calvinist to the core, who does not believe in frivolity, um, who takes that to the logical extreme in the sense that he um, is habitually ill-dressed. Um, his house, although by all accounts sparkling, um, is a is not a, exactly an ostentatious address, um, who seemed to believe in an interesting way that you couldn't be principled and rich. And, and, which, and Thomas Hutchinson, of course, will completely reverse that equation. He didn't believe you could be principled and poor. He just assumed that Adams and his friends were objecting to everything because they were a bunch of sort of crazed desperados. He doesn't see any, no, no, none of the rest of the principles of the matter seem to register with him. Um, but Adams just always focused on this very Puritan um, old world simplicity. And that is exactly where he both parts ways with Hancock, who tends to like to travel with liveried servants and in, and, and in a carriage with, um, with great trappings of it, on it, but also um, with just the way the world goes, at, with where the country goes after the revolution. I mean, this whole idea of let us return to the austere, to our austere roots. We lived on so little, we got by with so little is not where the country is going. And that entire mercantile future is something that is entirely lost on Samuel Adams. All right. Now then speak about the third act after 1780 and the when Sam Adams begins to fade into obscurity and it's the it comes up with the election of governor of the Massachusetts in 1780. And the two candidates are Hancock and Adams. He just doesn't seem to be able to make a smart move for someone who had been so strategic for so many years. He seems inevitably to either back the wrong horse, ally himself with the wrong person or insult someone. And Hancock at this point, Hancock, I should have added, by the way, is an immensely generous man. He has a lot of money. He likes to be thanked. He's been extremely generous with the town of Boston. He's bought them fire engines and he's paid for all kinds of decorations. He sent young men through through college. He presumably has underwritten much of Samuel Adams's activities. He's very generous. The town is very beholden to him. And it's a it's a very marked contrast, obviously, between this great benefactor and Adams, who begins to seem as if he's like some kind of relic. So in every contest in those years, Hancock will win out over Adams until the very end when Hancock and Adams serve together as governor and lieutenant governor with Adams as lieutenant. And then at Hancock's death, Adams will ascend to the governorship, a position for which, at which he's, for which he's particularly unqualified. He's very briefly governor of Massachusetts. But yeah, not his shining, by no means his shining hour, and even after their deaths, their ghosts will be fighting it out in the press. People will still be lobbing back and forth insults between between Hancock and John and Samuel Adams. It's a wonderful book, Stacy. What conclusion do you come away with at the end of your journey through the life story of Samuel Adams? Uh, you know, I think that I've started the book with this 
thirst for somebody who I, you know, I'd just been writing, as you know, about the Salem witch trials for many years. And I was looking for someone who had the courage to sort of, the courage of his convictions to stand up and take an unpopular stand, which is something that takes a very long time for anyone to do in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1692, when it was very dangerous to take that stand, as it is dangerous again in the 1760s. And Adams very much fit that description. And the more time I spent with him, the more time I was convinced and remain convinced that he teaches you that one person can actually make a difference and that ideas actually matter, that the pen actually, the words here basically such a crucial role. And that in many ways, and I, you know, I, I, I want to write a little bit more about this, in many ways, we are very uncomfortable with oligarchy and that some of that resistance to Great Britain is powered by the very local contempt for and jealousy of the Hutchinsons of Massachusetts and of other colonies, that this idea that a very small group of intermarried, very wealthy men controlled everything, that power and profit all led to their doorsteps, plays an essential role in the revolution. Well, it's a wonderful book, and thank you, Stacey Schiff, for speaking with us today about your new book, American Revolutionary. Samuel Adams. Thank you, Lewis. It's a complete pleasure. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.